Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It's uh, been a little while since the last one, but um, hopefully we should have some fun again. Today, my guest is Gabriella Brown. Gabriella, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're it's very great welcome. To be in WA. I know. Even I know. if I'm in London. You are in London. <laughs> yeah. um, so, for those who haven't haven't come across you before, could you quickly give us a just so we can orientate and place um, who you are and what it is that you do that's kind of meant that we're talking now? Okay, um, I work with organisations with leaders and teams in a wide variety of organisations and basically I help them to work as well as they can and what I bring that's a bit unusual, pretty unusual mm. to that, is that I apply psychoanalytic thinking and mm. systemic thinking so I can help them really get under the surface and understand much more about their motivations, their dynamics, the stuff that's going on that is invisible, but can really hinder yeah. the workplace and relationships, or if you can get under it and do something with it, can really help. Yeah. So and I've written a book. Yes. That's what I'm talking now. <laughs> which is which is what has provoked us because I've read this book and I was like, wow, I'm gonna reach out. So just, just, just to expand on that a bit further, many people will be aware of what a psychologist does, but what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychoanalyst, just so we're crystal clear? Well, a psychoanalyst, and I'm not a psychoanalyst, I need to say, I'm trained to apply psychoanalysis to the workplace right. and, and in coaching, but I'm not a psychoanalyst who will see people regularly they'll lie on a couch yeah. I know it sounds a cliche but the psychoanalyst works and this is what's very different from psychology psychoanalysis works with the unconscious yes um, and that I guess is the biggest difference mm. so and I also in applying psychoanalytic thinking I also try and get at the unconscious within the right. workplace Yes, and I think you know. I on the podcast I have spoken to a psychoanalyst before, you know, Jungian and dream therapist, and I just you know it's always, it's always good to reorientate ourselves on that. And I think it's fascinating that we immediately we're talking about those deeper levels of of all of us, um, yeah. which you know, as you said, are, are unconscious, unseen. Um, often felt but difficult to articulate. Yeah. Um, and so as a result of that, they, I guess to some, they can be kind of intimidating, scary, too difficult to handle, particularly if we're talking about a workplace. Yeah. Yeah. So- Yes, yeah, go on, carry on. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, you were about to say something. I think, you know, people can be intimidated if, if they think you're coming into a workplace to analyse them. Mm. They'll be very intimidated. And I'm always clear that that is not my job. Yes. And I can't. I'm not clinically trained. But also, that's not what I want to do. That's, I don't just psychoanalyse yeah. anybody. Yeah. And I think that's an, I think that's a really interesting delineation to make because often people will think of, I probably hear the word psycho at the front and and then immediately clump 
psychotherapist, psychoanalyst, psychologist, yeah. counselor into a, into a thing. And then it's like, well, I must have a problem to need to go to these places. Yeah. But the, the, the can, there are different gradients of that. There's different scales of gray that, that this can be applied to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the sort of opening sort of questions I wanted to ask you, and ironically enough, it comes from the last line of the book. <laughs> And, um, and and by the way, for anyone listening to this who's not read it, it's not a spoiler. It's not like, and therefore he found the pot of gold underneath the pillow and he was sitting on it all the time. Um, it's not that sort of spoiler. But, it, 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 you know, the last line of the book you wrote, I hope you, I hope you leave this book with no illusions about human nature and the cost of ignoring it in the workplace. Um, and, and that kind of summed up all of what was going on in here as I read it, um, it was the cost of ignoring human nature. And I think the fact that you've used the word nature as well is, you know, there's something very innate about this, you know, how we actually are. And yet here, here we are, this is how we actually are. And then there's this thing called the workplace that, you know, we have to go because nobody's figured out how to work off the money grid yet. Um, and, and, you know, contrary to, you know, financial freedom just mean, for some people means having more money, but that defeats the object. But anyway, back to the point is that you have this human nature and you have this workplace yeah. and yet the two have to interact. Yeah. Um, I guess, can you tell me more about how you see the two interacting? Okay, um, I suppose uh, this is a slightly roundabout way of answering your question, but I suppose what I see a lot is that what we try and do in the workplace is pretend that they don't interact. Yes. So we behave as if we can be entirely rational and logical and we can work with targets and we might do psychometric tests to help in terms of personality and what we what we our preferences are etc and that helps understand certain things but basically we don't go deeper than that as if the workplace isn't infused with human nature yes so that that would be my starting point and and i believe absolutely fervently believe that you can't you can't cut out human nature when there are human beings there. No. And given that the workplace is full of human beings, usually, um, human nature is there and it does interact. And if we ignore it and pretend it's not happening, we can get in a mess and we can miss all sorts of vital things. I mean, I, I suppose one really obvious example that we think about very commonly in the family, but we don't think about in the workplace, is sibling rivalry. We, yeah. It's become common parlance for families, hasn't it? To yes. talk about rivalry between siblings. Yeah, but yeah. Very, it's not at all commonly talked about in the workplace. Mm. And yet our peers in work are our siblings. Yes. And actually, why wouldn't we bring some sibling rivalry into that context as well? 
particularly given you know some of the foundational elements of the workplace are that it's individualized it's competitive and it's hierarchical exactly exactly and if you take that to our first experience of of an organization for most of us that's our our family and yeah. the you know mum and dad are at the top of the hierarchy we're with siblings and we compete quite often for mum and dad's attention for their approval etc mm. mm. and i guess that i get i get like you said because the 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 workplace is only wanting this small part of us um i guess hence why you've called it all that we are yeah <laughs> because yeah. it is all that we are that turns yeah. up i think you use the analogy of we can't leave part of us with our pajamas under our pillow one of yeah. the sort of phrases that we have here is that you know I, I can't i can't wipe my can't wipe the feet of the rest of my life when i walk through the door into the office mm. and nice phrase yeah yeah and I, and i guess the more that we ignore human nature in the workplace the more that wonky stuff's going to happen because exactly. we just can't ignore this yeah and wonky stuff is going to happen but also we miss out the potential of what yes. can happen that that it, was the, actually that was the finish of that line uh, yet also uplifted by the potential of all that we are yeah because i yeah. think i think we you know both are there and we need to create the conditions hmm. to kind of limit the very difficult parts that we all have and the destructiveness we're all capable of and bring out the best in us yeah because otherwise surely um just looking at a small percentage of it, a small percentage of who we are um you know you continue that that's quite uh, that's quite neurotic really isn't it that was, yeah <laughs> you know it's it's and compartmentalizing a small part and then we end up living in that because we spend a significant proportion of our week in in that box and when the people start to go a bit stir crazy and we have workplace mental health issues absolutely well one one of the reasons that i wanted to write the book was that i think the workplace can be so i mean it can be great can be yeah. absolutely great but it can be so damaging yeah. for people and we know that, you know, mental health in the workplace, there's actually a lot of mental ill health in the workplace. Mm. There's terrible statistics on stress and depression and anxiety. Yes. In the, from work. And, you know, I think we've somehow gone badly wrong. Yeah. Is part of that, a lot of the focus is, how do I put this? A lot of, a lot of the focus I find is, okay, we'll, we'll stick a, 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 an EAP, an employment assistance program in, and you can have 10 sessions with a counsellor and, and, and we'll do some well-being training and stuff like that. But it's all on the individual, on the individual, on the individual, yes. without necessarily looking at the organisation and the structure of the workplace, which yeah. is creating the conditions that give rise to this. I absolutely agree with that. I think when coaching became so fashionable, um, mm -hmm. one of the reasons for the fashion, I think, mm 
was a kind of outsourcing of organisational issues. Yeah. And you even outsource individual stress to yeah. a coach. And you yeah. say to the, to the employee, look, we're being very generous. We're going to pay for you to have all this wonderful coaching. But actually what you're saying is we don't want to know about your problems. We certainly don't want to know how they relate to what the organisation might be doing. Just yeah. take them off. We'll outsource them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> take yeah. them to a coach and, you know, then you'll be fine and we'll be yeah. fine. Can go to a nice room, sit on a sofa, drink some yeah. tea and biscuits, have, you know, poor me and a bit of tears and come back when you're ready. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we don't have to know about it or be contaminated with it. Yes. Yes. Um, I guess the other part of, of, of that line that I wrote out is this reference to human nature. And it would strike me that... In, in a world where like, particularly we've spent a lot of time in the workplace, which has these characteristics that we've just talked about, um, that we can become quite um, disconnected from our, our human nature, whether that's individual and or collective. And um, I, I wondered whether you could give us a bit of insight into what you see as more our sort of innate human nature. I mean, I noticed you structured the book over three, three sections, yeah. which yeah. was, you know, human nature at work. And then yeah. there was the losing ourselves. And then there was the yeah. finding ourselves. Yeah. I mean, is that part, do you see that as part of our cycle, the like losing ourselves and then finding ourselves and stuff? And you also talked a bit about, you know, it was a beautiful thing at the end, talking about endings. You know, a good ending is the start of a rebirth. A bad ending will go round and round and come back and kick you in the ass. You didn't use that language, but essentially that was what you meant. So I wondered whether you could just illuminate somebody who's listening to this a bit more into what, what is our more innate human nature? Um, it's a lovely question. I think that one of the things we don't learn about ourselves commonly is that we're incoherent. Right. Human nature is not a coherent, cohesive thing. Yeah. We don't have a coherent personality. So when we you have, say coherent, you mean? Um, that all fits together neatly. Yes. And that works together smoothly. Yeah and that has kind of one motivation and one drive, and we are like X. Yes. This is our main, or maybe we're X, Y, and Z, but these are our characteristics, and, and this, is, this is how it all fits together. Yeah. Actually, actually, we're, we have inbuilt huge contradictions. Yes. Um, we have many, many different parts of ourselves and they will often vie for position within us. Yes. Um, and the contradictions are a very basic contradiction that I suppose I play with or work with quite a lot in the book is that between our destructiveness and our constructiveness. Yes. And hence, after the bit about human nature at work, I, I did the losing ourselves and the finding yes. ourselves. Because I think we, 
you know, we it's, it's not uncommon for us to be in battle with ourselves. And yeah. a lot of the time, well, it, it's, it's ordinary. It's happening yeah. all the time. Yeah. Mostly we don't know about it. It's in our unconscious. Yeah. But sometimes it really comes out and we do know about it. We might hear an inner voice that's maybe hugely critical and putting us down. And yeah. we're trying, another part of us is trying to say, will you shut up and let me just do what I'm doing? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. then it's more conscious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This really isn't helping. Yeah. Then that that's conscious then, isn't it? We know that yeah. there are at least two different things going on in our heads. Um, yeah. Actually, there's lots of different things and a lot of them we don't know about, but it yeah. doesn't mean they're not affecting us. So I suppose I wanted to, first of all, show something of the basics of human nature, including things that we kind of put negative labels on. But I wanted to say, yes, that they're extreme, they're problematic, but actually, like paranoia, for instance, yeah. at its extreme, of course, it's problematic. But actually, it's also ordinary. And we kind of need a bit of it in order, if we didn't have any of it, we'd be so gullible, we couldn't manage life. Yeah, yeah, so we need true. a bit of it to manage, but also it's really ordinary. I think the story I wrote about paranoia, I hope showed yeah. an ordinary take on what can happen to us all. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to show, you know, the drive for life and the drive towards death, yeah, and and all those parts of the human nature, the things that drive us, that are yeah. just there and just drive us and come out in different ways. And of course, our nurture, our family history, all of that will have an influence of their dominance and prominence within our personality. But they're always part of human nature. Yeah. And then I suppose the losing and finding ourselves, I think, I think, I mean, developmentally, I think the destructiveness comes first. Yeah. But then as, as we mature, that we go in, we can go round and round these places, you know, in an hour, you might go from something that's destructive to something constructive, or, or it might take months or yeah. minutes. You know, we're, we're going round and in and out of those places a lot. Yes. Yes. I, I really like that, the fact that we are contradictory. We have these competing... We have these competing forces within us. And that, yeah, we do have drives towards greatness and drives towards destruction. Um, you know, I think you, you referred to it as, you know, like a life drive and a death drive. And I was yeah. like that's that's pretty cool that's you know and i think deep down we all know where we've been sort of um net dragged towards a a, a death drive yeah um or a downward spiral you know you know for all the positives that are going on there are negatives and it ends up being net negative and it's pulling us down and then there are yeah. times when things are more positive and it's net positive and they're pulling up and i think that idea of almost like net positive, as in there's always competing forces, but at that point, we're off. Yeah. And, and, and so for me, it was, the book was almost like 
a safe space to actually read things that um, actually happen. I, and I mean, it's not just, oh, they actually happen, but this is, this is really, really what, what we're like when we go to work, you know, over, over, uh, I mean, look, I like creating safe spaces for people to talk about stuff because this is how we do the podcast. But, you know, within the book, it was like, you know, these are real life things that over my, you know, 16, 17 years of being a management consultant, I spotted these things playing out all the time. I was involved in them or I watched them. And, and so they, they all happen. And I think deep down when we have a quiet moment, we can resonate with m- most of the chapters mm. or have experience. Yeah. I mean, uh, people are, readers are telling me that, that they, mm. and I've, I've had feedback that's quite surprised me, actually. Somebody in a corporate who has responded to a public sector story because it's the theme of the story. It's not yes. the nature of the work. It's the theme, yeah. what and happens to those characters that's really resonated for them. And it's interesting because it's not just individuals, it's you also treat groups as a whole entity in yeah. and of them, themselves as well. And yeah. that's, that's really important because a group is not just a collection of individuals, it becomes an entity in and of its own right. Yes. And then and that to too will have, contra- will have the same nature conditions applied to it, contradictory yeah. things and, yeah. Yeah. And, and stuff of that nature. But yeah, no, I found it, and the fact that there were stories um, and there's this idea that I've been introduced to by um, an indigenous elder here, Sean Nanup, of painting and pointing. And so painting has whole painting and you can see everything. So instead of just pointing to the tree that's in it, you see the tree and amongst everything else that's in the landscape that happens to be in the painting. But, the, but by painting something, you carry so much more information that people can resonate with and they can build out on mm-hmm. from their own experience. And so there was, there was a lot of painting in this, but there was the occasional paragraphs where you just point at something very gently within the context and then come back out. So it, it, to me, it was way more powerful than any textbook that I read in my organisational psychology master's degree. I love that analogy of painting and pointing. And I, I hadn't thought of myself as pointing, but I, I think that makes absolute sense. And the thing that it, within, as you call it, the painting, you're kind of leaving it to the reader to take what they will from the painting. Mm. You're doing some a little bit pointing, but then yeah. they'll, they'll resonate in the way that works yeah. for them. And you're not trying to force that. Yeah. And... I think a lot of it is because one of my bugbears with the world of psychology as a whole is that by and large it takes this sort of third party objective white coat with a clipboard I'll observe and see what's going on and but that's not how we work we are connected beings and and so you might as well just be in the middle of it actually acknowledging you're in the middle of life and then watch what's going on from the middle of life. And that's what we do in these stories. Yeah. I mean, what I, uh, my, my journey of writing this book, I Mm. I was always determined I wasn't going to write a textbook. I wasn't going to write an academic book. I wasn't going to write a book for people like us, you know, Mm. 
had some psychological training, worked with organisations. Fantastic if people like us like it. But my main audience my, in my mind was just people at work who were interested yeah. in thinking, what happens? Why do these weird things go what on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> what the hell is going on? I mean, who hasn't asked themselves at some oh, point yeah. in their working lives? So that was that was my idea. And and I I wanted it to be stories because we relate to stories, don't we? Yes. We make sense of stories. So I really wanted to tell stories as as you say, paint the pictures. Mm. But just your other point about being in the middle, I suppose, and I came to this very gradually, um, that I needed to be in it. And I needed to include biography and my own experiences. And that came in more and more over time, actually, because I thought what I don't want to be is that psychologist person that you've described with the clipboard as if I'm somehow superior to all of this. You know, you people get in these messes and I can look back and say, aha, well. So I thought, no, it's really important that I include myself because I am talking about all that we are and I'm part of the we. Yes, and you're showing up at work. Yeah. Yeah, all of you. (laughs) Yeah. That's lovely. I think one of the other things that shone out um, through the stories, which is a, it's probably going back to our, what are some of the, like the undeniable truths of our nature. Um, one of the things that seemed to jump out to me is that in what we think is a very rational and cognitive, cognitive environment the workplace um there's a lot of emotions flying around (laughs) there's a lot of emotions flying around yeah you know there's there's a fantastic line that you put in there which is feelings don't follow plans right (laughs) i I was just i read that and i was like that is gold i will be using that shamelessly um (laughs) and you know and and it's not just it's not just that we don't allow for it it's not just that we don't but but we don't even we don't seem to normalize it we don't no. seem to ha- even have the tools i mean i asked myself the question you know, you know given that you know we're frequently going through change in the workplace which means that as something finishes something needs to start but in order for something to finish we do actually need to mourn and grieve it before we move on to the next thing that's one of the biggest things that comes out in this and that if we don't deal with those rising emotions and and deal you know get into them appropriately well no i'm going to take the word appropriate unless you get in don't get into them they're going to just spiral around and come down here and then you know it's going to be a stinky smell leaking leaking up from the cellar downstairs inside. yeah and but then i asked myself the question but how would you do that in the workplace where, where are the tools what and i was stumped yeah I, and i think that's what happens a lot of the time we don't have the tools and for me the tools are actually the language 
Right. And the safety, the safe and the acknowledgement, because I think not only do we not talk about emotions, we don't think about them really playing out in the workplace, but also we kind of think it's wrong that we should be feeling all sorts of things in the workplace because we're at work and we're not meant to be emotionally you know all over the place or ha- hugely happy or hugely depressed or whatever we are yeah yeah or all these different things that's that you can do that at home that's fine you're yeah. not meant to do it at work yeah. so it's also almost as if it's something a bit shameful mm. and that makes it even harder yeah you know you don't find tools for something that you think is a bit shameful no no so i think that's the starting place to acknowledge that this is important that this is unavoidable and it can be incredibly helpful and you can only have the tools if you think okay there's something worth having tools for here yeah and then I think the tools, you know, we, we've tried to make tools in things like Myers-Briggs, et cetera. And I'm not, you know, those things have their place. Yeah. But they only go to a certain point. Yeah. I think, I mean, personally in my work, I don't use any quote marks tools. Yeah. What I use is talking and thinking yeah. and expressing <laughs> ourselves. Yeah. But you have to create the space and the time and the safety. Yeah. It's like make it psychologically safe enough for people to do that. Yes. And that in and of its that in and of it, it, itself seems like when you look at a workplace, a rare skill to be able to do. I agree. Yeah, yeah ironically enough, we all most of us have the capacity to do that. Mm. Otherwise, we'd never have close conversations with loved ones and family members. Yeah, yeah. So if you create the right conditions, a lot of people, as you say, they do know how to do it. If you mm. create the conditions. Hmm. Hmm. It's quite. Um, it's quite kind of deep and sense and simple, all in equal measures, isn't it? Hmm. Mm. Mm. I think that's right. I mean, there's one story where I ask the founders of an organisation how they are, and they say they're fine. Yeah. I think it's that story, and I say, yeah, but really, how are you? Yeah, no, and they yeah. say, well, we don't, we don't ask each other that. Yeah. That's intrusive. I'm, I'm responding to you saying it's it's also simple. Yeah. And that is really simple. How are you? But yeah. really, how are you? Yeah, yeah. And not taking not some just, crappy, I'm crappy answer. Mm. And really, really, how are you? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and I guess from that, you know, you talked about, you know, uh, there's a chapter in there about talking, of, um, you know, talking about the unspeakable truths and things that nature of I guess there's there's a there's a fine line between repetitive moaning and and actually being able to sit there in a safe space and go do you know what all this is shit (laughs) right now and people taking that seriously yeah in the workplace 
but where again where do you find the space for that usually when things have gone catastrophically wrong yeah i mean i think i i don't know what the experience is like in wa i think talking to leaders here some leaders mm. i think covid has kind of accelerated change for mm. the better or potentially accelerated change for the better so people realized in during lockdowns leaders of course were asking staff really how are you and yeah. making space for that and put prioritizing the looking out for mm. and after their staff and i think some of that those conversations will remain because i think people started also the barriers between your private self and your professional yeah. stuff broke down you know yeah. you would see each other in your houses in people's bedrooms and you went into people's private space literally yeah, very true, very true. over zoom or <clears throat> teams so some of those barriers broke down and also people weren't all in the same boat at, by any means but everybody did experience a kind of existential threat to life yes. that we weren't used to was which would then start to play at some of the basic foundations of many of the illusions that they hold dear to navigate life exactly so exactly so so i think some of those conversations changed and i think there are organizations and leaders that now think actually we mustn't go back to how we were yes this change is really important and it's yes. humanized us more yes. and we need to keep it we, well we like being human <laughs> yes we like being human and we can see the benefits yeah yeah it's what we're here to do <laughs> yeah you you also talked in the book about that and we mentioned it earlier on that the life drive and the death drive yeah which comes yeah. from psychoanalysis yeah i wonder if you could just expand on that a bit more because on one level, they, you know, they sound like pretty serious things. Um, well, I think it's the, I think we all have within us a really powerful drive that wants to not just stay alive, but also live our life. Yes. You know, enjoy our life, make relationships do things we want to do, write a book it was one of mine, you know, not just survive, but live. Mm. And at the same time, and that, that part of us, sorry, just to carry on, that part of us mm. is also the part that fuels some of our most constructive parts. Yeah. You know, within that drive, we find mm. compassion for ourselves and for others we find um, the best parts of our ambition, of our, our discipline, the best parts of all of that. Mm. Um, and then at the same time, there's this other drive that kind of says, let's just go back to where we came from, which is a kind of innate state of nothingness. 
Mm. So I think when people hear the word death drive, what they think is, what are you saying? We want to die? Yeah. Um, and, and that doesn't make sense to people. But I think what does make sense to people is if you say it's about kind of giving up. Yeah. It's a deadliness yeah. of giving up on life. So we don't bother to push ourselves to write the book that we really want to write. We yeah. don't bother to have the difficult conversation to protect a relationship that matters to us. Mm. We don't, we, we cut off from our feelings. We cut off from other people. We don't look at them and recognize what they're about. And, and we instead give in to some of the things that pull away from life, like huge envy, for instance, which spoils somebody else's pleasure. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, massive competitiveness or extreme, look at war that, you know, there's yeah. always war somewhere and now we're seeing horrific war. Um, it's, it's, our, it's human beings that they're most destructive yeah. doing that. And of course, war does kill people. It's, it uses aggression in our aggression in the most negative way. Yeah. But on a day by day basis, we might find that we just can't really be bothered. Yeah. You know, there's a kind of giving up mm. passivity. That's a bit of the death drive. Yes, yeah, almost like this toxic passivity that goes into deep set lethargy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. And I think this is not just within individuals, but it can be within collectives and teams as well. Definitely. I think whilst many, someone who's listened to this might, I don't know, I don't know how they are with their own mortality in life. And they might find this a bit triggering on an individual level, but I'm sure many people have been in a group where either the wheels came off and then unbeknown to them or they can't put their foot on it but a uh, finger on it but there was this drive and the team yeah. you know fragmented and disintegrated yeah yeah and that can happen quite a lot to teams especially teams under stress yeah yeah because i suppose ultimately you know team disintegrates team disintegrates <laughs> the team might die but i won't <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, I, for me, it was certainly something that I've read, I've thought about quite a bit over the last week or so. Um, just to actually sit and consider where in life am I on a positive life growth drive and where am I? Mm. This sort of lethargy, death, mm. disintegration drive. Mm. And um, it, for me, it's not just Bryn is, I mean, yeah, look, I talked about earlier on net positive and net negative. And, you know, maybe if you chunk it up to a global scale, you could look, look at it from that perspective. But I found it more interesting to be more nuanced and look at different aspects of life. Mm. And, and I, yeah. think that's, I, th I think that's really helpful because it is more nuanced usually. Yeah. And you yeah. can be doing... A bit of both, you know. Yeah. I can be full of life over here and full of death over there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, I've certainly, yeah, certainly got that. Um, so for the, 
I'm going to ask you pretty much the same question with three tilts on it. So for the everyday person who goes to work, what would you hope that they, what, what sort of chords would you hope that the book and the messages in it resonate with them? Oh, um, I would hope that what resonates with them is the complexity of human nature mm. and how that plays out in the workplace, mm. inevitably. And that therefore it's okay and positive to actually think about it and take account of it and give yeah. it time and space. Mm. I'd hope that they'd, what would resonate is also the bits for them that they see, oh God, yeah, I do that. Mm. Oh, that's worth me thinking about. Yeah. And the bits that they think, oh, now I think I understand what happened in that situation that I could never get my head around. I could yeah. never understand that at all. That yeah. would be lovely if that resonated. Mm. And I suppose most of all, it's something about we are human beings. We are complicated. We have good stuff. We have shit stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah, and, no. and can, like, how can we make our workplaces more humane? Yes. Yeah. So we can. Move I'd, I'd love that. Them. You know, can we? I'd love that to really resonate with yeah. people. Can we? I guess I was going to ask the same question. Yeah. Because I was going to ask you the same question for what would you hope a manager of a team took out of it? And what would you hope that a, a leader of an organization, you know, an executive leader of an organization? Oh, that, that's better to section yeah. the questions. Yeah. So I suppose- So I had sort of individual employee, manager of team, and then executive leader of organization. So the, man, the individual employee probably won't necessarily be thinking can we be more human at work? But they'll think the other things that I talked about. Yeah. Well, hopefully they'll give themselves more of a free pass just to go easier on themselves. I agree. Which will Absolutely. help them life with more ease and grace. Absolutely. Go easier on themselves for, and not feel, oh, God, I shouldn't be feeling this. Yeah. I shouldn't be feeling that. You are feeling that. And yeah. there's a reason you're feeling that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Then what, what happens with it? Yeah. It's not that you shouldn't be. I agree, go easier on themselves and be more compassionate to themselves and hopefully to others. Yeah. Um, one of the things, the FT did a wonderful review and one of the things that they said was, this book may make you think again about people at work, including those and maybe especially those you dislike. Yeah. <laughs> may make you think again. That's quite I think it says something like that, maybe you know, be a bit more understanding. So I would hope for that. For the manager, I'd hope that they'd think, oh, actually, this could make me a much better manager. Because if I really allow people to be who they are, mm. and if I recognise that and, and make space for that, mm. I could create better conditions for all the things that I want as a manager productivity, yeah. you know, um, innovation, creativity, a good, good team atmosphere. If I, if I accept that that is all hard work, 
because of human nature. Yes. And it won't all be linear. But I can include it in what we're doing, and that could be very rewarding mm. Mm. for the team, for me, and for the organisation overall. Yes. And then for the leader at the top, really thinking about how do we humanise this workplace? For yes. the leader at the top and the manager, maybe this is a way of actually doing something about those terrible statistics yes. on stress, anxiety, depression at work. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. Um, because I think that would, that, that would be the... I think deep down, everyone would wish for that. Yeah. We, we, like I said, we haven't unraveled, we haven't unraveled the question of how do we all not have to go to work? Yeah. <laughs> but, in the, but until such time as we do, how, how can we make it more humane? How can we move to it with more ease and grace? How can we go there to the workplace and not come back damaged? Yeah. And, you know, work can be enormously rewarding. We can find yeah. our best selves in many ways in the productivity and the camaraderie. So how mm. do we really make the most of that? Yeah. And as you say, not come back damaged. Yeah, and it, it can be a great crucible for growth. Yes. You know, in, in, in a safe place, we can be more free to be who we are and we can have more robust conversations um that really go out on a you know can go full out on difference of opinions which creates an amazing creative spark but in the full trust that we might have vehemently disagree on this but it doesn't mean to say we're not going to be friends once yeah. this is over whereas yeah. now we tend to run around shitting ourselves that we've that we've upset somebody and then that could be part of my performance review and a, and then I'm going yeah. to get not the salary increase or less of a bonus. And then that. And so, you know, what is that encouraging in life? Exactly. Sheep. And then all of a sudden, you know, in an ever-changing world where we want flexibility and creativity, you're not exactly promoting that in the, in the core work style. Yeah, totally agree. Mm. 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 Is there anything else you want to tell us about the, the, this whole adventure? um of, of you know the work you do and and then putting it into a book so there's almost like this nugget of um wisdom that goes out there i suppose i suppose i i do think that psychoanalytic thinking has got so much to offer in yeah. the workplace and people like me have been extraordinarily bad at making it accessible. Yeah. So very few people would think, oh, this is something we could use to help us in, in the workplace. Yeah. So that, that was part of what I was trying to do, say, look, this is here. I'm not simply making it simplistic, but I hope I'm making it accessible. Yeah. Um, and that was part of my motivation for the book as well. There is yeah. a whole lot that we can use here that we don't, we yes. don't tend to use. And I think, be, be, sort of coming back to where we started, with, because we're talking about deeper unconscious stuff, 
we can't always point to it. We need the painting of, of stories in order to orientate ourselves. Yeah. Because, you know, for, from the outside, it's scary stuff. You know, what, you're telling me there's unseen forces in me that are cruising around? I, I, I don't want to know about that. Yeah. But the truth, but if we're all honest with ourselves, deep down that's happening. But then how do I access this? Yeah. And I suppose it is difficult from a you know, pure marketing perspective. How, how do you market something that's you know, less tangible than you know, cognitive behavioral therapy type stuff? Absolutely. Where Absolutely. I, can, I, can, I can stick a measurable behavior on it. And look, every, everybody's turning up and they're ticking the box. So, yeah, you know, 20 out of 20 yeah. boxes were ticked. Everyone's cool. It is difficult from a marketing perspective and you can't say, well, you know, I can give you six sessions and you'll all come out like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, you can't yeah. begin to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that, yeah, and that's, yeah, and that's dealing with the real truth of the matter, isn't it? It's like, you know, well, we'll do a session and see where it goes. Yeah. Because <laughs> until we unpick it, I don't really know. And I suppose, again, that's rubbing up against the backdrop of, you know, we like predictable outcomes. In yeah, we want certainty. We want and of certainty. course, there, is, there isn't certainty. We can't yeah. have certainty. Yeah. And there was, there was, I think it, I can't remember which chapter it was. There was one where you talked about perfection. Mm. And that Good was just, The chapter's called yes, Good Enough. But, 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 you know, it's how we create perception. Uh, how we create the perception of perfection yeah um do, well you tell you tell because it's you know how does how does the sense of perfection come about and what's the drive towards perfection oh um well i i think we we many of us live with the illusion that there is such a thing yes of course there isn't so we try and we're always creating workplaces we're always striving for better, 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 mm. as if there is an absolutely ideal yeah. that you reach. So that's part of how we do it. But then internally, um, we have things that push us, some of us, towards a, an idea of perfection. So I, yeah. I think in that chapter, I talk about the superego. And yeah. this is now using a very clinical term but you know it's a part of our mind that can be helpful and say mm, maybe you've had enough wine now yeah you know maybe like the inner parent like the inner parent that's benign and helpful and still compassionate yeah or we can have a superego that and it is responsible for conscience it's that kind of part of our mind and some of us have a superego that will just berate us and push us down all the time. So they won't say, that superego wouldn't say, mm, maybe maybe not another glass of wine. That superego might say more of the along the lines of, trust you, other people would stop, but you don't, you're weak, yeah. you can look at you, you having more and then you'll have another one it's what you always do you're pathetic yeah. i'm yeah, over egging right. this but you know yeah. that that super critical internal voice yes 
And, and the guy in the chapter that I write about seems to have everything going for him. Yeah. But it turns out that he's got a very harsh internal voice yes. that is berating him. And that really makes life hard for him. Yes, because there's this relentless drive towards a perfection state. Yeah, and he can't, he's never good enough yeah. in his own yeah. eyes. He's not good enough. Yeah. A, a number of people have said, oh, that really rang bells. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And, and even if you do read a sense of perfection, part of that is you, you've had to trim off a lot of the rest of your perception, your grip on reality, just to have this nice, perfect state. Because as we know, reality is not perfect and it's, you know, pretty paradoxical and messy and untidy. <laughs> and I think I say that in the ending part of the book, you know, how do yeah. you know when it's good enough? Yeah. Because you have to do the same when you're writing a book. Okay, yeah. when, I mean, obviously you're helped by a deadline. <laughs> like, yeah. your publisher will say, yeah. we're going to print. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. But, but we, have, we have this at work as well. I mean, when we all kind of grew up with a, with a school experience where there was, you know, exams that lasted for you know two hours and you had to put your pens down at the end of two hours and you had to do as much as you could within the two hours or you have to get the essay done by Thursday morning and then that's the deadline and it has to be in and you kind of do the best you can and you're just used to that and you get rolling and rolling and rolling yet when we go to work it's it's not so clear cut and it can be you know there are deadlines but sometimes deadlines can be flexible and yeah. and the feedback mechanisms are not as transparent as when you are at yeah. school yeah. and and so then it's like well how do you orientate yourself in this if i'm not getting these blunt feedback mechanisms yeah. working and and then it's like well what is good enough and and then so yeah i can see how you know without getting the feedback of all right Bryn, you've got to see for that internal report that you just written for us you know it, it was what it was and, and so I don't know where I am. So should I be striving for better? Is it not? Is it this? Is it that? Yeah. yeah. Very Which is another thing, actually, that managers could think about in terms of how they give feedback. Being aware of some people will be feeling, if I, the manager, say one word about it not being perfect, some people will do something with that in their minds. Others yeah. won't. Yeah, but yeah, some yeah. will really do that something. So, mm. you know, how do I work out how to give individual feedback in a helpful yeah. way? That, that then gets into this whole minefield. If, if I'm having to constantly think about whether one false word and this person's going to cave in, then how do I ever get to the place where the output of his work is at the standard that is required? <laughs> Yeah. If it's not there, and of point. course, of course, you it's can't. Really as a manager, you can't. You can't try never to give a word that would yeah. somebody might react to. But you might realise with one member of staff that they seem to take any slight criticism very hard, and you might say, mm. you know, I don't know how you heard that yeah. when I said that. You might yeah. give them a chance to say, well, you know, I just realised it, it was way 
you were disappointed or something. And then the manager yeah, yeah. can say, I wasn't disappointed. All I'm saying is X, you know. Yeah. So they yeah. might just create a space so that they're allowing something to be said that puts yeah. it in context, mm. which other people won't need, but some people may. Mm. Fantastic. This, um, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Um, one of the last questions I ask all my guests, um, which kind of helps some things up sometimes, but if, um, if, I could, if I could take everybody at work, right? usually I say everyone on the planet, but we're gonna make it specific today. If I could make everybody at work just um, sit down and chill out for 10 minutes and you could pop a question into the collective consciousness for everyone to sit down and cogitate on in that 10 minutes, what would it be? Oh, wow. Oh, um, I think it would be, what am I missing about myself in the workplace? Ooh. What am I not aware of? What am I not noticing? What am I not seeing yeah. in myself, in my reactions in, in the workplace? Because mm. I think the starting point has got to be with our own self-awareness. Yes. So what yeah. am I not Not someone speaking? else's. <laughs> no, I think we've got to start with ourselves. Yeah. What am I not seeing about myself and my interactions in the workplace? My judgments, my interactions in the workplace. Love it. That's great. Um, the thinking behind that is one about self-awareness, but two about thinking about our own contribution to things. So sometimes, you know, you can come out of a meeting and think, my boss is the worst boss on the planet. And if only I had a different boss, life would be hunky-dory. Or that bloody colleague drives me absolutely berserk. And if it wasn't for them, everything would be fine. Yes. And what we miss is, the part we, I mean, those may be true, but also we may miss the part, what we did to provoke the colleague, what mm. we, how we make the boss, how we actually make it harder for them so they might be harder on us. You know, the bits that we play yes. in that. Mm. Yeah, no, I like, I like that. There's, multi, there's, there's many levels and layers to it. Yeah. Super. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank Me you. Me so too. Much. Really enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. It's been a lot of Great fun. Question. And um, obviously, this is the book. <laughs> where um, where can people find it and find you? Uh, they can find me on uh, my author website is gabriellabrown.co.uk. The book, and there are links to the book there. There's Amazon, Waterstones. Uh, I don't... Yeah, they are selling it in Australia as well. Right, yeah. Yeah, well, look, that's how I got a copy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you, can, you should be able to get it quite easily. Yes. 
I think I, I got it via the, I think it was the book depository or book taker. The book depository, that's a good one to mention because they also don't charge for selling abroad. I mean, right, for yeah. sending it abroad. That's so they're right. a good one. And there is a link to them on my website. Superb. There we go. Thank Gabriella. you so much. Thank you Thank so you much for your time.